Well, to the viewers, welcome to the Narayan Agarwal show. I am super delighted to have today's guest on our show. The reason being, he's been a mentor and an advisor to me in college. But let me introduce you because he has great achievements and somebody who can give us super great insights on economics and the current situation of COVID and how everything is being impacted. Dr. Robert Graham, he's an American economist. He is also the author of the book, Managerial Economics for Dummies. He's been the former head of economics department at Hanover College and has also served previously as the vice president and dean of academic affairs at Hanover College. Having said that, welcoming Dr. Graham on board. Dr. Graham, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and I thank you for having me on the program. I'm so, so lucky and fortunate that you were able to find time and do this interview with us because I think economics and COVID, there's such big topics of discussion right now, and it would be so valuable to get your insights and inputs on things. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Graham, uh, we'll, we'll largely divide the questions in two basic themes. The first part is the response to the current crisis, the crisis and the pandemic that's going on, the response to that. And then later on, we'll move on to how the world will change according to you um, and that perspective. So going on with the first theme, the current crisis. The first question I have for you, Dr. Graham, is how effective are price controls and um, you know, putting price controls on scarce goods because I see in a lot of countries, uh, some goods are becoming scarce because of the pandemic and governments are imposing strict price controls that you cannot sell the goods beyond this price. How effective do you think they are as an economist? Well, price controls are, in my mind, very ineffective in accomplishing the intended goals. For example, in the United States, when the pandemic started becoming a serious issue. Um, prices were fixed. You can no longer raise prices. And as a direct result of that, uh, people began hoarding things. So a uh, couple of things that have disappeared from the shelves in the United States, toilet paper, hand sanitizers, you can't find that. Uh, people would go to the stores and load down their shopping carts with both items. Uh, and then later on, when People later went to purchase those items, they weren't available. So if I can buy the hand sanitizer at its pre-pandemic price, now with those concerns, I'm gonna go out and buy all the hand sanitizer I can at that same price. That doesn't cost me very much. If on right. the other hand, the price was allowed to increase, then people wouldn't be hoarding. It's too expensive to hoard and the hand sanitizer would have been available to more people instead of being stashed in closets in individuals' homes. Uh, so the same thing happens with all those products. It, to try to keep the price at the same level it was before the emergency results in hoarding. It makes it impossible for other people to find the product. That's a very interesting perspective because I think it's kind of counterintuitive because most people say the prices should be reduced or controlled so that the poor can get access to the hand sanitizers or the poor can get access to those essential goods. But you're saying the price control works against that. How, how, how come? Well, first of all, uh, we're focusing on price, but the issue is quantity. So you can fix the price at its pre-pandemic levels. 
but that doesn't guarantee anybody has access to it. If I'm poor and I go into the local grocery store looking for hand sanitizer, I'm not going to be able to get it. It's not there. So you haven't accomplished the intended purpose by providing access to the poor. Now, if there are organizations willing to donate hand sanitizer, um, then they could decide how they want to allocate that. And what would happen in those circumstances, if stores were selling hand sanitizer, say, at 10 times the pre-pandemic price, the only people that could afford to purchase hand sanitizer at the pre-pandemic price would be the wealthy. Correct. Um, But if there are donated hand sanitizer available, then how are you going to allocate that? Well, people could wait in line for a bottle or two bottles of hand sanitizer. The people that were going to be willing to wait in line are typically the people that can't afford the high-priced hand sanitizer. Correct. As a result, all that donated hand sanitizer will tend to go to the poor. And that's the people we want to give it to. If I'm giving away hand sanitizer, I don't want to give it away to wealthy people. I want to get the people who are most in need and can't afford it. But when you fix the price of hand sanitizer, now that charity, if I'm wealthy and I couldn't buy hand sanitizer at the store because we're all out of it, I'm waiting in line with those poor people and we're both waiting for that charity. I don't want that rich person in line. I want that rich person to go out and buy it. And then my donated hand sanitizer uh, can be directed to those who can't afford it and then would wait in line for it. That's, that's an amazing perspective. I think that's an eye-opening perspective for a lot of people. Uh, lastly, why do governments do this? Is it because of like politics? Is it because to appease the mass? Why would governments do this? Well, I, I, I think politically it's expedient. Yeah, uh, it's correct. difficult to explain to people why it makes sense to allow the price to go up. That seems like the businesses are simply taking advantage of the emergency. Uh, And it's not businesses taking advantage of the emergency. It's businesses trying to allocate a scarce quantity of, say, hand sanitizer uh, in a difficult time. And I don't want people to be hoarding hand sanitizer. I want it to be available for everybody. Raising the price enables that to happen. I don't want rich people standing in line for donated hand sanitizer because they couldn't buy it in the store. I want them to pay for it in the store and let the poor people wait in line for the donated hand sanitizer. And if indeed businesses are concerned about the fact that they're charging such a high price for their hand sanitizer and making unexpected profits, of course the businesses can always donate those profits to causes, maybe to local hospitals or other organizations who are help providing support during this difficult time. So businesses don't have to keep those profits that they're making. They can donate those to other causes. Wow. I I love that uh, perspective. It's so different uh, and unheard of in general, because usually we hear the common rhetoric that people would be pleased by, (laughs) but uh, not factual. Yeah. Not factual information on how stuff actually affects things. Well, again, the bottom line is current policy has failed. Keeping the price the same has failed. And I know it's failed because I cannot get hand sanitizer. Yes. There's no way that you can call that a success. I can't get hand sanitizer and I need it right now. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for answering that question uh, so 
honestly and boldly and showing us a new perspective, Dr. Graham. I'm moving on to the next question with a current response to the crisis. A lot of countries, almost all countries in the world, went on a very, very big shutdown, apart from four countries like Sweden, Thailand, Japan. These did not go on a shutdown, but majority countries, big nations, went on a big shutdown. Is an economic shutdown viable? It's a big debate, especially after the two months that have passed. What do you think? What's your perspective as an economist? Well, the short answer is no. Um, (laughs) Shutting down an entire economy just cannot be done. And in fact, it has not been done. So governments that shut down their economy decided certain businesses are essential. So our political leaders decided what was essential and what was not essential. Um, and we have broad parameters for that. So healthcare facilities are essential. Correct. And we all understand that. But if I'm a small business owner and I depend upon my entire livelihood from my small business, forcing me to shut down is going to destroy my livelihood. It's going to prevent me from supporting my family. Bottom line, as a small business owner, my business is essential to me. And so having government decide that my business can fail while others can't diminishes the value of my existence. They're ignoring how this might impact me. So in the United States now, the expectation is Friday of this week when we look at May's unemployment, it will be just under 20%. That's prior to the pandemic, unemployment in this country was under 4%. 40 million people have applied for unemployment compensation. Those people have lost a lot um, because of government shutdown of the economy. Another problem with the government shutdown of the economy is it's a one size fits all. So in the case of Indiana, where I live, um, right now in Marion County, where the city of Indianapolis is located, there have been 10,000 positive tests for COVID-19 and 600 people have died in that county because of COVID-19. In the county where I live, 46, relative to 10,000, 46 people have tested positive in my county and there's been one death. To treat both of these counties the same doesn't work. We're very different circumstances. Correct. the rules that might be beneficial for Indianapolis are not the same rules that might be beneficial for the county where I live. And so it becomes a very blunt instrument. And what we're doing is diminishing the cost of shutting down the economy. Um, In this country, we're now hearing stories about shutting down the economy is going to affect meat production. Farmers aren't able to get their products to market. So it's affecting our food supply. Shutting down the economy, a growing concern in this country is food insecurity, that people will not be able to feed themselves. Uh, So the shutting down the economy becomes such a blunt instrument. Another issue related to the pandemic is it's been fairly obvious globally who is most at risk for this disease. That elderly with pre-existing conditions are especially vulnerable. And so we absolutely need to take steps to protect those individuals. And in fact, individuals I know who fall in that category are taking taking steps themselves. 
They're being prudent. So they're saying, I'm not going out. I'm at risk. I am going to, in some sense, self-quarantine, even though I'm healthy, because I don't want to take the risk of getting this disease. Correct. So we need to be taking precautions for nursing homes, for elderly population who are vulnerable. But to force somebody who is 20 in good health to lose their job because we shut down the economy, that person's bearing a disproportionate share of the cost. They're not the one at risk. And so telling that person they can't take the actions that they need to in order to support themselves seems to me to simply be wrong. Now, again, I'm not advocating going out and having a big party with 50 people. Prudence dictates you shouldn't do that. <laughs> On the other hand, to be able to go to work with a fast face mask, with proper sanitizing techniques in place, that seems to me something that should have been going on all along. Wow. A lot of people are saying, actually, yeah, that we have not considered what the economic cost of going on a shutdown is, and that might kill more people because they don't have food, especially in developing countries uh, like that, where I am, India and other developing countries, where people lose jobs and lose livelihoods. Right, right. And, and again, those costs are going to be playing out over years. So at some point, hopefully in the nearer future, vaccines develop for the disease. But the cost of what we've done to our economies is going to be a cost that continues for year after year. Um, we've changed things in fundamental ways. Wow. Um, just an offshoot of this question. Some people say that at what point do you always prioritize the economy? Sometimes you just got to prioritize people and life and well-being. Uh, what do you say to that? Um, who, which people and whose lives are, are you prior, prioritizing? Um, is it the elderly? Is it the 20-year-old who worked at a restaurant as a waiter who now has lost the job? Uh, who are you prior, prioritizing? Um, and what does that say about your perspective about those individuals? Um, that you know better than the 20-year-old? What should be the 20 year old should be doing that you know better than the elderly, what the elderly should be doing. I mean, at some point, I think we have to trust people to act out of prudence, to act with temperance, and to take actions that will be beneficial to themselves. Um, taking away my livelihood is not helpful for me. Uh, shutting down my small business where I depend upon my livelihood is not helpful to me. As a political leader, can you trust me to take actions that are in my own best interest? And again, if I lived in Indianapolis, I'd be reacting very differently to this situation in terms of my own individual actions than given where I live. Uh, they're two different settings and they would lead to different individual responses on my part. I, I, the highlight of this answer was that, why should the government decide uh, what is essential and what is not? Because if I'm a small business owner, that's essential to me in my living. And I think that was a very interesting uh, light that you shed on this question. Um, thank you, Dr. Graham. Thus far, uh, moving on to the second theme of our conversation, how will the world change after COVID? This is something everybody's excited about. Some, everybody wants to predict this so that they can ride the wave and know and be ahead of the game. <laughs> and lucky yeah. enough, we have you to answer that. Somebody who's so experienced and who knows what they're talking about. So the first question, uh, <laughs> Dr. Ram, you want to say something? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I was 
chuckling because if I know exactly how this is going to affect us moving forward, I'm going to invest lots of money in the stocks that I think will be really good performers and get rich. So I don't have that great an insight. Uh, yes. I have some thoughts on it, but <laughs> you're right. One of my favorite economists, uh, Deidre McCluskey, has a book she entitled "If You're So Smart." That's the title of the book. In the first <laughs> chapter, she fills in the rest of that sentence: "If you're so smart, why aren't you rich?" <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. I, I heard a quote somewhere. There's always an expert of the past, but never an expert of the future. We can only kind of give our perspective on it. But uh, right. that, that totally ties in line uh, with what you were saying. Having said that, you do have a lot of experience and insight in the subject, which can give us the direction to think about. And that's why these questions coming up for you. Right, right. And, and it's a good question and an important question. So, so the first question, uh, Dr. Graham, I have for you is, how is the consumer behavior going to change? How is the consumer behavior, the demand behavior going to change after COVID, do you think? Right. And, and there's lots of ways that consumer behavior is going to change moving forward. Uh, one thing that we're already seeing evidence of is consumers saving a lot more. Uh, so in the United States, when the government's provided uh, relief to people through unemployment compensation, through the stimulus checks, uh, what they found is a lot of people were saving those or using those to pay off debt. So moving forward, this is the first time um, most people in the United States have been tested in this way. Uh, the Great Depression was back in the 1930s. Uh, our unemployment today is higher than it has been since the Great Depression. Uh, so when I think back to people who lived through the Great Depression, they became, in some sense, a lot more self-reliant by having emergency funds, uh, by saving in case something like that occurred again. Well, we got so far removed from that, people became, to use the word I used earlier, less prudent. Correct. Well, I, think, I think we're going to see them become more prudent, that we don't know what's going to happen. So particularly now when we talk about will there be another wave of this virus over next winter? People now are going to start preparing for that by saving because they don't know what's going to happen. Um, so consumer spending is going to, uh, I think, decrease, at least for the uh, next few years. Uh, consumers are going to be saving more of their income and spending less. Then in terms of specific areas, um, all sorts of things will change in terms of specific ways that they spend their money. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see how long the impact on tourism lasts, for example. Right. So regions that depend heavily on tourism, uh, people for a while I think are going to be very reluctant to travel long distances. So now my vacation is going to be someplace within a couple hundred miles <laughs> where I live, as opposed to 3,000 miles. Um, if you are in New York City and depending upon tourism for your livelihood, uh, I don't see people going to New York City as tourists in the near future. Okay. Uh, so you're going to have a lot of impacts in terms of the tourism. Um, so consumers in so many ways are going to change their behavior reflecting the uncertainty of the pandemic. Um, you might see a little more stockpiling of things, um, people making sure that they have goods on hand. 
if hand sanitizer ever reappears, suddenly I can see individuals going out and again, continuing that hoarding trend. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have some in the basement <laughs> just in case. Uh, so we'll see all those kinds of things, a little more prudence, a little more caution, uh, and then influencing individuals' decisions that those consumers made. Yeah, I, I really see a demand of two-wheelers going up in India from my perspective because people don't want to avoid public transportation. So some people are buying two-wheelers, but the demand for four-wheelers going down because they're more expensive and people um, not willing to buy those. Oh, that, that's bad news for me as somebody that enjoys bicycle riding. Uh, <laughs> you can see, as you said, avoiding public transportation is going to be an important thing moving forward. So what's your alternative transportation? Two-wheelers? or I hope they don't increase the price of bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I hope so too. <laughs> we need a lot of bicycles out there. Um, <laughs> Dr. Graham, moving on to the next question I have for you. Could businesses have been better prepared for this pandemic and how will businesses adapt? Um, first of all, could they be better prepared? Um, it, we have to be careful here about hindsight. Uh, <laughs> so in some sense, it's easy to say yes. Um, but nobody saw this kind of situation happening, although perhaps we should have. Uh, SAR, there was the SARS outbreak, there's been the Ebola outbreak. So we've seen this kind of situation before, but it was always contained regionally. It never became a global pandemic. Um, but there is evidence out there that something like this might happen. Uh, we now are being made aware of research that people had published 10, 15, 20 years ago that warned that this was a possibility. Um, but you can't entertain all possibilities. So people, in some sense, discounted this. Uh, they won't do that moving forward. But in terms of business preparation, one good philosophy for all business leaders to have in mind, and particularly moving forward, is how do you make the worst case scenario? your best case scenario. So in good times, it's easy to be profitable, but what would enable me to be profitable during a difficult time for whatever reason uh, it's difficult? Uh, so if businesses conduct a philosophy, we're always thinking about what makes the worst case scenario my best case scenario, the better, better prepared for anything that happens, be it a pandemic or some other circumstance. But then within specific businesses, there are also going to be notable challenges. Um, we've all been working at home in this country, or not all of us, but a lot of people working from home. Correct. Uh, we're figuring out how to do that. Well, if I'm a business owner, particularly a medium size or large business, I'm maintaining an office space that costs me a lot of money. Well, if people can work effectively from home, why would I be spending all that money on office space? So I think you're gonna see over the next several years, a real impact on commercial real estate, uh, that there's gonna be lots of vacancies, much lower rents, because one, it's less costly for me to have a lot of my employees working from home. From home. And two, if there is a reoccurrence of the pandemic, then I'm social distancing by having people already working at home. <laughs> Um, so I think 
areas like commercial real estate, we're going to see dramatic fallout in that particular industry. And so if I wanted to get rich, I wouldn't be investing in commercial real estate at the present <laughs> time. Um, I think you're going to see a real decline in small businesses. Uh, say you're a restaurant owner uh, and you own your own restaurant. Uh, this situation showed how vulnerable you are. And all small business owners recognize they're vulnerable. But this brought it home that a government decision affected my ability to maintain my livelihood. Well, instead of operating my own small restaurant, I can go to work managing a restaurant for some large national chain. And I think you're going to see that. More people getting out of the small business that they're in and for some national chain. Uh, and so I see that there's going to be a real decline in small business ownership. I've already mentioned the decline in tourism, but we're, we're now doing virtual conferences, um, virtual uh, meetings of all sorts. Uh, and so I think you're going to see a decline in travel. It's very expensive to fly people into meetings. I, I've been taking place in lots of virtual meetings with groups that I'm involved in. Um, and normally they'd be flying us to a location, uh, paying for our hotel rooms, paying for our food, a lot cheaper to do it by a Zoom or some other <laughs> online platform. Correct. Uh, so I think it's going to affect conferences and business travel in some pretty substantive ways. Um, and then in my own area, uh, as a college professor, uh, education is going to be affected. Uh, one of the greatest expenses of attending college in the United States is paying the room and board. Well, if I can attend college online from home, I can save a lot of that expense. But then that also leads to real inequities. Not everybody has the same ability to access online education. So there's a potential for growing inequality in the provision of education uh, if, as we move online. So there's going to be all sorts of those things. And then in the United States, as you talk about people moving on to Social Security, people who've lost their jobs today have, in some cases, if they're eligible, moved to Social Security. So it's increasing the problems with that system. So there's all sorts of ripple effects like that that occur. I, I think it was, yeah, it's, it's not very heartening to hear that small businesses have to shut down because I know that's really backbone for a lot of uh, democratic countries and people encourage small businesses. Right. So that's where you go back um, to the philosophy, make the worst case scenario your best case scenario. It's easy to maintain your business when times are good. How do you keep your business going strong during the most difficult times? Um, back in the 19th century, uh, a very wealthy person in the United States, Andrew Carnegie, owned a steel company. Ultimately, it became U.S. Steel, the biggest steel company in the world in 19, uh, the early 1900s. But Andrew Carnegie always had a lot of cash on hand. And so when the economy would go into a recession uh, during the late 19th century, all these steel companies would lose all their orders. They still had bills to pay, loans to pay, workers to pay, but they didn't have any income coming in. Well, Art, Carnegie had a lot of cash on hand. So first of all, he could continue making his loan payments and paying his workers. But also he used that cash to buy out his rivals. 
And because his rivals couldn't pay off their loans and pay their workers, typically he was able to buy their assets for something like 10 cents on the dollar. And then wow. after two or three years when the economy recovered, he more than made back. He made back many fold his investment in those companies. He made the worst case scenario his best case scenario. He could acquire assets for his companies at a, a small fraction of their value. And that's the way we gotta be thinking. How can I make that worst case scenario my best case scenario as a small business owner? That's amazing. Wow, as, as an entrepreneur, that's really insightful for me. And I can really use that as I go on um, and move forward. Yes, Thank yes, you. any situation, has its challenges, and obviously this pandemic, the challenges are huge, but there's also opportunities for those who are looking for them. Love it. <laughs> Dr. Graham, moving forward to the next question, how will financial institutions respond, like the RBI in India or the Fed, uh, as they say in the US, how do you think financial institutions and um, other such bodies are gonna respond? Well, it, the response for them is very difficult because interest rates before the pandemic were at historic lows. Uh, and so the use of central banks of monetary policy becomes very difficult because you already have the interest rates so low and some European countries, uh, they've even had negative interest rates. Uh, so you're being discouraged from saving. If I'm correct in terms of individuals saving more of their income, um, your monetary policy is not really going to be effective in terms of stimulating um, the economy. Uh, it's going to be hard to get consumers to go out and spend more. Uh, so then how do you support from the business side? Uh, so perhaps what we're going to see with central banks is more lending to businesses uh, and supporting programs related to that uh, instead of trying to stimulate consumer spending. Uh, for individual financial institutions, I mean, there's a host of questions. In the United States, uh, they've deferred a lot of loan repayment because people don't have the incomes to do that. Uh, but now, as you deferred my loan repayment, what's happening to my interest? Are you still compounding the interest on that loan? In which case, when I start repaying it, I actually have incurred a higher debt. Correct. And so they're going to have to grapple with how do you handle the compounding of interest during this forbearance on loan repayments? Uh, so I think also what you'll see, and you've already seen this trend, but the trend to online banking is going to accelerate greatly. Uh, again, if I can bank online, then... Uh, my bank doesn't have to maintain an office and it reduces their cost. Okay. But if we move more to online banking, as I think we will, then cybersecurity becomes even more critical. Already an area where we're woefully behind where we need to be given all the hacking and stuff that takes place. So if, if I were young, an area I'd want to get into were cybersecurity because I think that's going to be the growth area uh, for the foreseeable future. Wow, I, I should really look into that personally. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. It, it is going to be a growth area because everything's going online. Um, and we will pull back some, obviously, after the pandemic passes. Um, but again, there's going to be a number of things that reinforce wanting to stay online. Uh, but we're going to have to have the security to be able to support that.
Wow. Great perspectives, Dr. Graham. Um, another question I have for you is, what are the long-term consequences of government bailouts? You know, we see the government coming in and bailing out a bunch of companies because they're too big to fail. Um, what are the long-term consequences of such moves by the government? Is that justified? Should the government be able to take taxpayers' money and bail out certain companies by their discretion? Well, yeah, the, the bailouts, too often we uh, focus on the benefit of the bailout and never address the point you mentioned and the critical point. Well, who's paying for this? Uh, money is not what matters. It's what we're producing, what we're consuming. Uh, so there's the great story of Germany after World War I, uh, the victors in World War I, uh, particularly Britain and France, imposed reparations on the German government. Germany had to pay for the war damages. Uh, the reparations were excessive. They were huge. Germany had, did not have the economic ability to make those repayments. But the repayments were in money. So all the German government did is print lots of money. And as a result, there was tremendous hyperinflation, inflation that was so substantial that workers would get paid twice a day and then be allowed time off to spend their money before prices went up. Restaurants would not put the price of your meal on the menu because that price would go up by the time you finished your meal. Because there's uh, so much money in the economy that money right. is not essentially valued. Right. It's decreasing in value. Point, at one point, and this isn't the worst of that situation, but at one point, uh, of one billion German rentenmarks, which was the currency at the time, one billion rentenmarks had the same value as 25 cents in U.S. currency. Uh, so we can't just print money to solve these problems. Money is not production. It's not goods available for consumption. So who's going to bear the cost? Well, if you allow inflation to occur, such as I just suggested, then the cost is going to be on consumers who now are buying those higher priced products. If you're borrowing the money in order to make these payments, then in the future, taxpayers are going to have to pay interest on those loans. Um, so there's going to be a cost at some point. Uh, and the question is, how do you pay for those costs? Uh, so the bailouts are not cost-free. Uh, there is a cost that has to be paid for those. Um, I'm reminded of a story, and actually the story uh, comes from India. Uh, and it's from the mid-19th century. And it involves the British government trying to deal with a specific problem. This isn't even some widespread problem like the pandemic that's affected so many things. In Delhi, the British government was trying to deal with the problem of cobras in the city. Yes. And so British government paid a bounty for cobras. You bring in a dead cobra and we'll pay you. And Indians who are very smart did what? They established cobra farms. <laughs> they started raising cobras. Yes. And then killing them, taking them to the British government, saying, here's my cobra, pay me my bounty. <laughs> well, the British government found out they were doing this. And so the British government said, uh oh, uh, that's not what we intended. That was not our plan. So we're going to stop paying the bounty. Now, if you're a cobra farmer, what do you do? 
you let go of all your cobras. Cobras, yeah. And so now there are even more cobras in the city. Wow. That story is called the cobra effect. Cobra effect. And so what you intended to do is much different from what really ended up happening. Your intended solution actually made it the problem worse. And the British government officials of the time, they were trying to make a better situation, but they failed to take into account how individuals will respond. And they ended up making the situation much worse. And I worry sometimes with things like bailouts and all that, we don't have a lot of knowledge of what the unintended consequences are, how actual people respond. And therefore it becomes a very risk, high risk endeavor. I mean, why did we do the government bailouts to begin with? Well, in part, because the first thing government did was shut down the economy. So then you shut down the economy, you create a problem. Now I got a bailout to eliminate that problem. The bailout itself will create other problems. And it just keeps ratcheting up as you create more and more problems with your intended solution to the last problem. Wow, that's a great perspective. Um, the highlight, I think, would be that we focus too much on the benefits of the bailout, but we forget to see the cost. At what cost is that benefit coming? Right, right. It, it, our, our perspective becomes very short term there. So we're addressing the problem that exists right now, but we're creating problems for next year, two years, five years down the road. Um, and those problems are going to have to be dealt with. I have a wonderful quote, and then it's related to that last topic that you had. And it's from... Awesome. Um, my favorite economist, Adam Smith, as you well know. <laughs> yes. But, but related to that last, um, in the theory of moral sediments, Adam Smith, and I'm now quoting, the man of system, on the contrary, is apt to be very wise in his own conceit and is often so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. He goes on to establish it completely and in all its parts without any regard either to the great interest or to the strong prejudices which may oppose it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them but that in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. If these two principles coincide and act in the same direction, the game of human society will go on and harmoniously and is very likely to be happy and successful. If they are opposite or different, the game will go on miserably and the society must at all times in the highest degree of disorder. Wow. Basically, the legislator might have one in intended consequence in mind, but the pieces of the chessboard, that's us, all different individuals, we have our own moves. So right. And it's very difficult when you start telling us how to move to actually work that harmoniously. I'll send you an email with that quote. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love that, Dr. Graham. Dr. Graham, thank you so much for being on the show and um, enlightening us with such great insights, especially in the current times. I, I think this is going to be so helpful for people who want perspective on COVID, economics, the shutdown, and especially business owners who are watching. Thank you very well, thank much. You.
Thank you, and I wish you all the best. I uh, wish you much success with your business and wish you and your family good health. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Graham.